Well, hello again. This is Phil Giuliani back here on Messianic Lamb Network, and this program is One in Messiah. We're here every Thursday at this time, and then also on Mondays at the same time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time. Glad to have you with us, and thanks for tuning in. If it's the first time you've tuned in, and I always like to start out by saying One in Messiah is, of course, what's commonly called a one new man ministry. And it's based on uh, Ephesians 2, 14 and 15, that in his flesh, Yeshua broke down the partition between the two, making one new man. And it's also based on John five thirty nine, where Yeshua himself says, all the scriptures testify of me. So therefore we connect passages from the New Testament with passages from the Tanakh, and normally do teachings with PowerPoints and occasionally we have a guest and hope to get some guests on in the weeks to come. Um, but welcome, glad that you tuned in. And I also would like to remind everyone that if you live in the Cleveland area, we have the live version of One in Messiah, which is every Friday evening we gather at about 6.15 and usually start about 6.30. And we meet at 709 Brook Park Road. 709 Brook Park Road, which is Calvary Chapel Church. And we'd love to have you come over and pop in. We do kind of a modified Arab Shabbat service with some praise and worship and a teaching. And sometimes we have parties. <laughs> For the feast days, we have parties, and we actually had a nice party for Christmas last week. So this week, we'll get back to teaching. So if you're in the area and you got a chance to pop in, that would be great. Love to see you. And um, these teachings that are here on Messianic Lamb also go to my YouTube network, um, if you go to YouTube and search for One in Messiah, Gift of Grace Ministries, that's One in Messiah, Gift of Grace Ministries. There's, I don't know how many YouTubes, hundreds, but all of these teachings plus other things are there and they're Friday night sessions and so forth. But I'll have a slide at the end to, to remind you of that because there's also web, two websites and a podcast and another uh, project which I've been working on to facilitate Bible teaching to people who can be anywhere on their computer or on their phone or on their iPad and log in and hear live teachings that are organized by book. And that's, uh, as you can imagine, a big project it's taken quite a long time to organize the, the um, platform, and I'm starting to put the content on. So probably in the next couple of months, I'll be letting you know a lot more about that, and it'll be another avenue to explore in terms of Bible teaching. And since we're talking about Bible teaching, uh, some years ago I put together well, kind of an introductory class on the Torah, uh, it's not it's not like a Torah for Dummies book, 
it's kind of like a, a Torah class for Christians who don't really know a lot about the Torah or feel that studying it is kind of boring or outdated. And uh, there are 33 sessions that are about each an hour and a quarter long. So it's not something you can watch in one day or even in two days. But um, there's a YouTube channel that I started for that called The Torah Class, The Torah Class. So if you search for that on YouTube, uh, but I realized a few weeks ago that when you search for the Torah class, you get a lot of other um, channels. You get a lot of other, whatever you call them, platforms or other schools and so forth. So you have to kind of scroll down and you'll see the, the mine are all done in red. Some of them have my picture on it, some of them don't, but You'll be able to find it, but it might take you a minute. So that's the Torah class. But anyway, enough advertising, though. Like I said, there'll be a slide at the end that kind of summarizes all of this. But today we're going to talk a little bit about um, the end of the year. Because when this today is, in fact, um, the last Thursday of 2023 and as we come to the end of a year it's always good to kind of go back and look over the what's happened over the past year and of course looking forward to what's going to happen over the course of the next year and this was uh this was of course popularized by the Roman god Janus, which we get the name January, because he had two faces, one looking backwards and one looking forwards, so they named the month January. But um, that's kind of irrelevant. But the idea is that you look forward and you look backwards. And it's kind of like when we celebrate the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah or Yom Teruah in the fall, it's a matter of the preparation time for that involves looking back over the past year, seeing what you've done with your life, seeing what you've done in your spiritual life, seeing how you've done following the Lord in terms of the law and his directives and so forth, and then hoping, resolving that in the next year, in the following year, you're going to do a better job. In the time, especially leading up to Rosh Hashanah, uh, during the month of Elul, and then the 10 days of awe between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are geared to this. And the repeated prayer is that my name be written in the book of life. So it's, Kind of like that with the end of the calendar year that we're, we're um, right up against now. And we've just celebrated, everyone in the world has just celebrated the Christmas season, has commemorated the birth of the Messiah, the birth of the God-man, and 
we've done a couple of teachings and programs on that. We're not going to rehash that, but we're going to do, I'm going to do a teaching that kind of ties in signs of what comes in the past and what comes in the future. And I hope it'll be useful because as we, as we move out of 2023, I think everyone will admit who thinks about it for more than a minute and a half, that it's been quite a challenging year spiritually. It's been spiritual warfare that has geared up by a few notches over the year before. And whenever you think things can't get worse, they get worse. And we know this time is coming. We know prophetically from so many scripture passages, right? I'll list them all, but when Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he tells them that at the end, there'll be the great falling away and that the man of sin will be revealed. And of course, these themes are echoed in Daniel and in Revelation and then Paul's letter to Timothy, where he says that at the end time, the perilous times are going to come. People are not going to endure sound doctrine. They don't want to know sound teaching. And they gather teachers around them to tell them what their itching ears want to hear. And you don't have to look too far on Christian TV to see that. You don't have to look too far in the churches in your neighborhood or in your general area to see that people want to hear what they want to hear and people want to have teachers around them to tell them what their mind has concocted in terms of the gospel or in terms of scripture study or in terms of how to live your life and what things matter and don't matter anymore and we can't possibly still be worried about things that people were worrying about 3,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago because now we've progressed and now we've evolved and this is the world as it stands now and as we approach the second coming of Yeshua which I think almost everybody would agree that we're at the end of the end times and we're going to start to probably see more prophetic things happening in the very near future, we know that these things are going to happen. And like um, a good friend of mine always says, if you don't realize there's spiritual warfare going on around you, you are already a casualty. Because like I tell people, it's not 1960 anymore. We're in the worse than being in the trenches. And so as we go into another year, we have to, Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 what we need to do. We have to put on the armor of God. God provides the armor, but we have to put it on. He doesn't put the armor on for us. We have to put the armor on. And we have to have the sword, which is the word. And you know that passage from Ephesians 6, which is so powerful. All, all the things that Paul mentions are defensive, except the sword. 
which is an offensive, offensive, something you use on the offense, which he says is the word of God. The writer to the Hebrews tells us in chapter four that the, the word is a two-edged sword and it cuts through everything. And as you know, one of my frustrations and one of the reasons that I have this new project, which is being developed that I mentioned briefly, is the fact that scriptural knowledge is so poor now that people cannot even evaluate what's going on around them because they don't know the basics. Their foundations are minimal, if anything. And when Yeshua said, if you build your house on the rock, it stands up to the storm. If you build your house on shifting sand, every time there's a storm, the house falls over. So if you're not built on a foundation, your house will fall over every time the wind blows or the waves come. If you have a foundation, you can withstand what's going on around you. So, so something to keep in mind as we go forward into the new year. And since um, the celebrations of Christmas, the celebrations of the Nativity of Messiah, the Nativity of the Lord just kind of wrapped up because, of course, now it starts in October and by December 25th, everyone is exhausted with Christmas and it's everybody's glad it's over with. But since those celebrations just ended, there's been a lot of things about the star, whether you call it the star of Bethlehem, the Christmas star, you know, whatever you call it. You see pictures of big stars everywhere. Even the secular world puts up pictures of stars. And so what I want to do today, now that I've already babbled for 14 minutes, <laughs> is to do a teaching about the star, where that comes from, how it's rooted in Torah how it applies to what happened in Bethlehem on the day of the Messiah's birth and what happened immediately afterwards. We probably will finish up next week with um, the Magi or the wise men or whatever you like to call them coming on the scene where the star is mentioned in considerable detail. So um, the talk's called Ruler of Israel because a star, the appearance of a star was always thought in ancient times to signify an important birth, the birth of a ruler, the birth of a powerful king. It had to do with, um, it had historical significance. It wasn't astronomical. It was more astrological, I guess you could say. And the Magi, of course, the word Magi comes from the same root as magic. And sometimes they're called astrologers. Um, people in the East were known for um, the astrology that they, that they did. And so it was not, they had no way to understand 
astronomical phenomenon because they didn't even know what a star was. <laughs> I mean, at this point, people believed that the Earth was flat, that there was a dome over the Earth, and the stars were just kind of on the dome, and things moved around as the dome went around the Earth or, or whatever. But th this was, of course, a very primitive understanding of not only the Earth and Moon and Sun, but also the solar system, stellar systems, galaxies, and so forth, because they had no way to know that. And even um, there's a quote I always like that um, was written by Thomas Aquinas, who is many people feel to be the most intelligent man who's ever lived. Aquinas said that a star, a human being is more important than a star because someday the star will cease to exist, but the human being will always be alive. The human being will never cease to exist. So in God's eyes, each one of us is more important than a star. And Aquinas didn't even know what a star was. We know what a star is, and it's a huge, huge body, millions of times bigger than the Earth, with unbelievable nuclear fusion going on, producing energy. But Aquinas was right. Someday, the stars will cease to exist we will still exist. So at the time of, in ancient days, I should say, I don't want to just say at the time of the first century, because it was before that as well, people thought the earth was flat and there was a dome over the earth. And so it was pretty simple. They figured out how the stars moved. They figured out how the planets moved. The Greeks were very good astronomers. The word planet comes from the Greek word for wanderer because the planets moved around much faster than the stars did because they, of course, were in orbit around our same sun and are much closer. They had no concept of this or couldn't have even fathomed how far stars were away from us. But when they saw, it, it was kind of common knowledge that a new star meant something was going to happen. Just like people used to be afraid of eclipses. People used to be afraid of comets. People used to be afraid of meteors. Because <coughs> things that changed in the sky were thought to be foretelling something. And a new star was one of them. Now, without getting into the Magi yet, because I want to talk about that more next week. I think, probably next week. They come and say, we saw, we saw his star in the east. They saw a new star. They knew something about the fact that a ruler in Israel was going to be born and that there was going to be a sign in the sky which was going to be a star. Now, most people, most people in our world most people in your church, most people in my church, have no clue whatsoever how the wise men would have known that or the fact that it is based in Torah, as we're going to see in a minute. 
in the book of Numbers, the Midbar, the book of Numbers, which in Hebrew means in the wilderness. We use the Greek word because of all the census that are done in the book. So there's numbers all through the book. So when I do Torah studies or when I'm doing Bible teachings, I always say, if you really want to amaze your friends, memorize the number of people in each of the tribes <laughs> that are done in the book of numbers and you can really amaze your friends. So if you're at a, you know, having coffee at a coffee shop with some of your pastor friends and you say, oh, you know how many people were in the tribe of Dan when they came out of Egypt? They'll be amazed. But that really isn't necessary to learn. <laughs> it's kind of a gee whiz thing. But anyway, so it's rooted what the Magi talked about when they got to Jerusalem. And they seem to know more about this than the religious leaders, and certainly more about it than Herod, who probably his fund of knowledge was pretty shallow, nor did he care about all that stuff. But anyway, the religious leaders never mentioned the star, but the Magi knew something that the religious leaders didn't know. And I'm going to make the PowerPoint bigger because we're going to go into a couple of scriptures that talk about a prophecy that has to do with a star. It has to do with what kind of a star is going to come, roughly when it's going to come, and what it's going to mean. And then, of course, how this was fulfilled at the time of Yeshua's birth, where a star did, in fact, appear. There's been astronomical conjectures about this, whether it was a conjunction of all the major planets that made it look like one star. In fact, this happened a few years ago, and there was a lot of buzz about this was, you know, Star of Bethlehem is back, which, of course, it's not the Star of Bethlehem. Whether this was a specific new creation just to announce the Book of Messiah. But like everything else, there was fulfillment of prophecy. Everything that happened with Yeshua, as he said, had to fulfill prophecy. Nothing, hap nothing happened randomly. Nothing happened by coincidence. He even talks about how prophecies have to be fulfilled. The writers, the gospel writers, talk about in order for the prophecy to be fulfilled, this happened. That happened in order to fulfill the prophecy. Because, of course, it is all connected. And so it's about prophecy, it's about fulfillment. And we're going to go back to the book of Numbers. We're going to take a passage from uh, Numbers 24. But if you know this, this whole section of Numbers from, I can't remember where it starts, um, 
around chapter 21 or 22, you have this whole situation with Balaam, Balaam, but we'll call him Balaam since that's what everybody calls him. This whole thing with Balaam as the as a who was a pagan priest, and he is um, hired, so to speak, by the king of the Amorites, Balak, to curse the Israelites. And we're not going to go over the whole story, but basically, he doesn't want to curse the Israelites. He has some amazing prophetic utterances that just if you read through them, it just blows your mind about Jacob and the dust of Jacob and how there was no iniquity in Jacob. And believe me, there was plenty of iniquity in Jacob, but this is not what he was prophesying and how the camp was so beautiful and how there wasn't anything that he could curse because God, capital G, the God of the Israelites, had blessed the camp, had blessed the people. And, you know, it's sort of at the, anybody knows about the talking donkey, that's part of this. And as interesting as that is, it's kind of off this topic, so we're not gonna we're not gonna get into that exactly. But <clears throat> kind of toward the end of this whole interaction, uh, Balaam, Balaam has a prophecy, and he's been asked to curse the Israelites. He says he can't curse them. Then Balak, the king, you know, he's willing to pay him money. He says, no, can't curse them. Then the king says, well, why don't you move over here? Take a different look at the camp. He goes, nope, can't curse them. Then he goes, how about stand over here? Maybe you can curse them if you stand over here. And Balak says, and Balaam says, nope, I can't curse them. I, you know, their God is with them. Their God has blessed them. And he talks about God like he's worshiping the same God, even though he's a pagan priest which isn't uncommon in several places in Tanakh. But anyway, so at this kind of end of this whole passage, he has this amazing prophecy. Numbers 24, 17. I see him, him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. So here's this pagan priest who has been going through this whole thing. And please read it for your homework because it's so good. Please read it for your homework. Or look it up in the Torah class YouTube channel that I mentioned if you have time to watch such a long thing. But <coughs> this is so amazing. He says, I see him. This, this has nothing to do with what is going on around him. This reminds me of, you know, sometimes when you're reading through the Psalms, David will be writing something, and then all of a sudden there'll be a messianic passage, and then he'll go back to what he was writing about. Isaiah does the same thing. Isaiah will be writing about a battle. All of a sudden, there's a messianic passage, and many others, but those are the two that always strike me, the Psalms and, and Isaiah. So all of a sudden, you know, you're going to curse the Israelites. No, I can't curse them. All of a sudden, Balaam says, I see him, but not now. 
I behold him, but not near. In other words, him, he is coming. I see him, but he's not near. He's not now, but at some point he's coming. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter out of Israel. A scepter. He's a pagan priest. He's hired, more or less. He's going to get paid well if he curses the Israelites. But instead, he blesses them. He can't curse them. He can't curse what God has blessed. And he gives this amazing messianic prophecy. This is a powerful messianic prophecy. It says it's not, he's not coming immediately, but he's going to come at an appointed time. And you know, because if you're watching this, I'm sure you've studied Torah and you've studied the prophets. Everything happens at appointed times. The feast days are appointed times. They're Moadim, they're appointed times. God doesn't say to the people, sometime in the spring, you can celebrate Passover. And then whenever it works out for you, eh, you know, sometime right after that, you can do first fruits. And then, you know, wait a little while. And when it's convenient for you, you can do Shavuot. And then sometime in the fall, you know, when you, whenever it's good, depending how busy you are, you can do, no, there's appointed times that are specifically given uh, at specific days that are appointed times. Messiah is born at an appointed time, not 50 years earlier, not 100 years later. Born at that particular time, for whatever reason, is it in the plan of salvation. Goes from Genesis, goes through Tanakh, goes through the Gospels, through the letters, into Revelation. It is all one continuous plan. So, the, at an appointed time, he's going to come. Not now. He's not. It's not near. This is the the, the people are in the wilderness. Of course, they're not to the land yet. So this prophecy is. Partly fulfilled by David, because the scepter will come out of Israel. Partly fulfilled by David. But with a star and a scepter, this is talking about the Messiah. This is talking about Yeshua. This is talking about Jesus of Nazareth, who is going to come. There's going to be a star that comes out of Jacob. Jacob, of course, is Israel. It's his name. His name was given to the people. And now, of course, to the nation, not to be confused with the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, but that's another story. But the modern nation is Israel. But Jacob's name was changed to Israel. They're all descendants of Jacob. So this is a prophecy about Messiah that's given centuries before Messiah comes on the scene. Centuries. And it comes from Jacob. The star comes from Jacob. Messiah comes from Jacob. 
the writer to the Hebrews presents this beautifully when he talks about how the high priest was chosen from among the people, and Yeshua as the eternal high priest is chosen from among the people. It doesn't come from some other people. The Israelites don't go get a high priest from some other land. They don't bring in some pagan guy and say, you're going to be high priest. So this star is going to come out of Jacob. You know, there's references to the star of the morning, the light. This is all a big star. This is not, this is something different than what you might call the normal stars that people were used to. And he talks about a scepter, which is a symbol of a ruler. It's a symbol of dominion and authority. A scepter, of course, is the gold thing that the king carried around. And when he, when he sat on his throne, he had the thing there. This even goes back to Genesis 49, when Jacob is about to die, Israel is about to die, and he blesses the sons. Everybody remembers the famous blessing on Manasseh and Ephraim. I always thought Joseph got kind of a bum deal on that, but that's another story. But the blessing to Judah, Yehuda, is what's important. Judah was pretty much of a creep. It wasn't exactly a notable ancestor of Messiah. But from him was going to come was going to be the scepter. From him was going to come the lion, the lion of Judah. One of the titles of Messiah, of course, son of David. One of the titles of Messiah, the ruling tribe. All the kings were from the tribe of Judah, and Jacob talks about how the scepter is going to be there with Judah until Shiloh comes. Shiloh is a term for Messiah, from the same root word as shalom, as peace. So it's a symbol of a ruler. It's a symbol of dominion. But here, what he's really talking about, he's not really talking about David. David partially fulfills this. But here he's talking about a king who will, his dominion will be the whole world. Everyone will be governed under that scepter. It's not going to be just for Israel. This is echoed in many other passages and many passages in the New Testament. This isn't just for Israel. Isn't just for Israel. This was prophesied long ago, and especially through the, the latter half of the book of Isaiah, many times Isaiah talks about how Gentiles will be included in the kingdom. <laughs> and yet in Ephesians 3, Paul talks about how that's the mystery of the ages. The Gentiles are going to be included. And I, I never quite could understand that because Shaul, Saul of Tarsus, Paul, we'll call him Paul to keep it simple, 
Paul certainly knew the prophecies of Isaiah, but he says that anyway. So this is not going to be just for Israel. And of course, this prophecy, many, this prophecy, which is in Torah, and then it's not really mentioned again until one of the minor prophets, Micah. The other prophets don't really talk about this particular story very much. Don't really talk about the star. Don't really talk about places where the star is going to be. But Micah does. And most people don't know much about the prophet Micah. But the one thing they do know is that he prophesied where Messiah was to be born. In fact, going back to that passage with the Magi when they get to Jerusalem, and Herod doesn't have a clue what's going on, and Herod asks the religious leaders, where is the Messiah to be born? And they don't say, oh, we'll get back to you on that. we got to go look that up. We're going to run back up to the Temple Mount and get some more scrolls. No, they know immediately that the prophet Micah says that Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. And I've always been fascinated that the Magi left for Bethlehem and not a single one of the religious leaders went with them. Not a single one. They're about eight or ten miles from the place. And those Magi came a thousand miles or whatever. These guys didn't go eight miles to go see what was going on. So Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are of old, from everlasting. So from everlasting, from eternity. The one who's going to come, the one who's going to be born in this little town, which says here, you're little among all the clans of Judah. You're little among all the thousands of Judah. It was the city of David. That's where Jesse and David and his brothers lived. And David, of course, became the royal family going down to Yeshua since in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we know that David was promised that from him was going to come the one who was going to shepherd Israel. So from this little town is going to come to me, the one who's to be ruler, who's going first from everlasting, from eternity. Going forth actually means coming from the mouth. It means a word. We talked a lot about word and logos a few weeks ago, or if you go to the YouTube channel, you can see a lot of stuff about that. But I don't want to rehash it now, but it literally means coming from the mouth. It's a word that's going to come. He's from everlasting, from all eternity. The one who's going to come at Bethlehem is going to be one who's always existed. It's not going to be a baby who came into existence nine months before 
this nativity in Bethlehem. It's someone who's always existed. From everlasting to everlasting, David says. So a new ruler, a soon ruler. Paul tells us in Romans 4, therefore it is a faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all. So this is going to be for everyone. It isn't going to be just for Israel. And it's going to be according to faith. It's going to be according to grace. And it's going to be for everyone. So from Bethlehem is coming this one who's from everlasting. And he showed signs and wonders healings, casting out demons, showed various power, showed that he was a ruler. He told Pilate he was a king. He told others he was a king. He is the one who was, in fact, born in Bethlehem and showed that he was this ruler that Balaam talked about and that Micah talked about. And he's born in a place which means house of bread. He refers to himself as the bread of life. He says, I'm the bread come down from heaven. The manna that we see in Torah is a type of this. Yeshua said, your ancestors ate manna in the desert and they died. But if you eat this bread, you'll live forever. He, ref- he refers to himself as bread. <clears throat> and it's no mystery that, well, it's a mystery, but it follows logically that at the Last Supper, his final Seder on earth, he talked about how the bread and wine was he, was himself. Because so many references about him have to do with bread. And so he was ruler. He's born in the city of David. He's the son of David. This is kind of the, I don't know what you want to call it, kind of the heartland of the, of the tribe of Judah's royalty, of the royal line. And Micah points out, referring back again to to Balaam, out of Jacob, Micah refines it by saying, the one who comes is going to be from everlasting. So since he's going to be born, born, Paul tells us in Galatians 4, that he is born of a woman, born under the law. He was born just like everybody else is born. He wasn't, he didn't just materialize on the scene. He was conceived and he developed and he grew and he was born. Just like everybody else who's been born, which is everybody except Adam and Eve. Everybody except Adam and Eve has had a mother. Even Jesus, even Yeshua has had a mother, has a mother. So 
from everlasting, but now in humanity. So from everlasting to humanity, the humanity is going to be part of what was everlasting. And so Messiah is 100% God and 100% man. This is very clear from, from this passage. And of course, in the early days of the Christian era, there was a lot of debate about Yeshua. Was he God? Was he man? Was he both? Was he one, not the other? Was he just a really good man? Was he just God who looked like a man? So all these things came together at the councils, the Council of Nicaea and so forth. But that Messiah is 100% of both natures in the same being. So from everlasting now, there's humanity. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brothers, if his brethren, shall return to the children of Israel. And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord. All capital letters, that means Yahweh, that's God's name. In the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. And they shall abide, for he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. So, what's going on here? A woman's going to be in labor and give birth. And a remnant of his brothers are going to come to him, the children of Israel, and then everyone else, a remnant of everyone else. And he's going to stand and feed his flock. And it's in the majesty and strength of the Lord, all capital letters, God's name, and he'll be peace. So he stands and he feeds. He talks about his flock. And of course, Yeshua refers himself to himself as the good shepherd in John chapter 10. If you've never read um, John chapter 10, please read it for your homework. It's pretty awesome. It's another good description of the reason I'm always talking about the remnant. And when I mentioned at the beginning that we live in this time, that's really, I think, unparalleled. There's always a remnant. So he refers to himself as the good shepherd. He feeds his flock. And he has the strength and the majesty of Yahweh. He's not an ordinary man. He's not a superbly good man. There were people at the time that believed that Yeshua was a really good man. And so God somehow came down on him when he was 30 years old. No, that would go against all of these prophecies. So he's not an ordinary man. It says the ends of the earth will see his salvation. Ends of the earth means everybody. It doesn't just mean the people living in the land of Israel. The ends of the earth means the whole earth, everybody. Remember, they thought the earth was flat, so the earth had ends. A sphere doesn't have ends. But if the earth is flat, you would have an end on one side and an end on the other side. And he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. 
he's referred to as the king of kings and the lord of lords because he has all authority so this great star was going to come the scepter was going to be there it was going to come from jacob of course as yeshua told the woman at the well salvation is from the jews salvation doesn't originate anywhere else salvation is from the jews so he has all authority in heaven and earth as he himself says to his apostles and of course since that time and we're not going to go over this in detail because there's another teacher i have there called israel all israel will be saved paul tells us in romans 11 that Israel's had some blindness about this until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. He's going to have authority. He's going to have royal authority over everyone to the ends of the earth. And then Paul quotes, the deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Another messianic prophecy. The covenant was a covenant of law, of course. If you kept the law, you were righteous. If you didn't keep the law, you weren't. And that's true. And that's a good definition. The problem is none of us are righteous. Because none of us can keep the law. But he says, my covenant with them is going to be, I'm going to take away their sins. They're not going to take away their own sins. I'm going to take away their sins. So this is a powerful messianic prophecy that Paul points out is not only for Israel, but is for the Gentiles as well. God himself will take away their sins. And it points out the Messiah comes from Jacob. Doesn't come from anywhere else. Comes from that land. Can't come from anywhere else. And he brings redemption. He's a shepherd. And the new covenant, which is first described in Jeremiah 31, 31. And this is why the gospel is good news. The gospel means good news. Because condemnation, condemnation, condemnation is all that the law does is condemn you when you don't keep it. But here is redemption because the new covenant takes away sin. The old covenant doesn't really take away sin. It covers sin. I don't want to get into all that because, of course, I'm not a theologian, but you know, the picture, Yom Kippur is actually the day of covering. It's that complete forgiveness. But the new covenant takes away sin. And so this is how the ruler is going to be. This is the one who's going to come from Bethlehem. That's not going to be the beginning of his existence because he comes from everlasting but this is the covenant. This is what's going to happen. This is why 
there is, that's why this is the only solution to the sin problem, to put it in common terms. And this is why Yeshua says, <coughs> no one comes to the Father except by me. Nobody comes except through me. Nobody comes unless you come through me. There is no other way. And that sounds very, um, oh, kind of narrow-minded. It sounds kind of, um, I don't know what, what's a good term, um, bigoted. But the fact is that this is the only way that salvation can come. And so these two Old Testament prophets, one a pagan, <laughs> One an Israelite kind of come together to say that a ruler is going to come, a scepter is going to come out of Jacob, and it's going to be symbolized by a star. Symbolized by a star. So when the wise men, the Magi, came and said, We saw his star in the east. They may have known Hebrew scripture. They were educated people, even though they're called astrologers or kings or whatever. They were educated people. They probably had some, they probably had copies of the Hebrew scripture. They knew what a star was going to be, that it was going to come from Jacob. They knew exactly where to go. They didn't head off to China. They knew where they had to go because of the star. Way back in the book of Numbers, chapter 24. So, because the star guided them to where they had to go, and because the star was a sign, it also has to be a sign for us as we go into this new year. Because we have to have a guidance of which way to go which, of course, is provided by the Holy Spirit, the Ruach, not a star. You're not going to see a star like that. Not going to be affected by astronomical phenomenon, although there may be, there will be astronomical phenomenon as the time of the end goes on. And Yeshua himself tells us that men will faint for fear of what's coming over the earth. We have to go further on this foundation that we have, and we have to know who it is that we're following, what it is we're supposed to do, and how we are to get other people ready for what's coming. Because the world hates us because it hated him. He told us that. The world is going to hate you because the world hates me. He says, if everyone in the world loves you, Something is wrong. So as we go into the new year, we have to focus in on the star, so to speak, the guidance, which, of course, is the Ruach, like he was in the Shekinah. And we have to be ready to give an account. You know, First Peter 3.15, always be ready to give an account for the hope that lies within you. We always have to be ready to do that. 
And so we look back, we can get very frustrated over everything that's happened. There's probably going to be many things happening in the future that are going to frustrate us. But we have to go forward with the idea that we are here for this time, this time in history, this time in the plan of salvation, because we've been given a message. So thanks for tuning in and thanks for listening for all this time. And um, come back again next week. <laughs>